Hey, welcome to Sex, Drugs, and Spirituality with Sydney DeLorean. That's me. Today we have another solo episode. Whoop, whoop. Uh, before we get into today's topic, which is the new Paris Hilton documentary, I'm going to do a little housekeeping. Uh, first of all, apparently when you reach a certain volume of listeners, companies start reaching out to you to rep their products, which is what's been happening to me because, I don't know, I guess I've crossed that threshold where I matter now. Um, but they're like the worst products. One was a no-name sex toy company. Another was a bathing suit company, but the bathing suits were so poorly made. They didn't even look good on the models. And I'm sorry, but if your product does not even look good on a model's body, what's it going to look like on a normal body? It drives me fucking bananas as someone with a educational and professional background in clothing construction. I cannot stand a poorly tailored garment. I'm looking at you, Dolls Kill, which is a controversial clothing website anyways because apparently they steal ideas of artists and then make their own version and profit off of it but also a lot of their products look like shit in the pictures I saw a pair of pants on that website where the models wearing them they fit but only one of the legs of the pants is hemmed just one pant leg is hemmed the other one unhemmed just a raw hem and no one caught that or uh, crocheted halter tops where like the booby cups are literally at the collarbones. Like the person who made it had no idea how a halter top fit or where breasts are. Um, I will never forget when the famous Britney Spears outtake where she was on tour and her mic was supposed to be turned off, but it wasn't. And so the entire stadium heard her say, my pussy's hanging out uh, because her costumes were these like little unitards, but there was just the tiniest strip of fabric on the crotch area, it, like the size of a thong on her pussy. And I said, that's clearly a garment that was designed and made by men, which usually men at that level of fashion know how to tailor around vulva. I took a tailoring class with an old Italian tailor who talked about that, how if you make a custom bikini, you need to feel comfortable measuring across a woman's labia. That's just how it goes. But whoever made these Britney Spears costumes didn't. And her freaking pussy was hanging out because some idiot with no idea how female anatomy works made them. Um, But I digress. So I've been getting companies (laughs) reaching out to me about supporting their products and their products suck ass. So I'm not going to do that. What I did do was I started reaching out to companies that I actually use their products to get a partnership with them. So uh, right off the bat so far, I established a relationship with Freestyle Watches because I use a Freestyle Watch. Uh, My Casios were really being put through the ringer, uh, particularly working seven days a week in the service industry, washing my hands every 15 minutes. Not great for a watch that is not waterproof. Uh, So Freestyle makes watches that are waterproof. They're made for surfers. They're super 80s-tastic with bright colors. Their website is freestyleusa.com. And if you use the offer code SDSPOD, you get 10% off a waterproof watch. So yes, I am shilling products now, babies, because I got bills. (laughs) I am running a company at a massive, massive loss. And also, I figure if I'm at the point now where companies want to have sponsorships on my show, I can flip that and at least go with products that I do use and appreciate. Um, So SDSPod uh, at FreestyleUSA.com. Get yourself a waterproof watch because you should be washing your hands all the time too. That's the world we are living in. Um... What else do I have to talk about? Oh, I am also getting contacted by people about being guests on the show. And um, like one was an alleged best-selling author, but I just couldn't get into his book. And um, so I didn't have him on the show because I'm not going to have someone on the show who's book I don't find riveting enough to be able to finish it. Um, The other one was a, um, let's see, 
Uh, I'm going to try to find the email so I can tell you uh, the exact story. Oh, I don't know. I don't know where my phone is, and it's on my phone. Um, the other is a Nobel Prize winning scientist. His publish re publisher reached out to me about having him on the podcast as a guest because he has some sort of some sort of theory about how a, a new breathing methods to increase nitric nitrous oxide in the blood can make you have better boners. I think is what he's getting at is if you do this special breathing, you'll have more nitrous oxide or nitrogen or whatever in your blood and your dick will be harder. And so I looked him up because how flattering a Nobel Prize winning scientist wants to be on my podcast. Well, it turns out he did win a Nobel Prize. He discovered um, this chemical component, which led to the invention of like heart medicines and ultimately Viagra. Like it's how Viagra works is it increases this thing in your blood and then you get boners. So his discovery led to the invention of Viagra. Um, but since winning the Nobel Prize, apparently he has dedicated his life to uh, falsifying scientific studies to support Herbalife products. So like he uh, has made over $15 million as a spokesperson for Herbalife. And what he's done is falsified the results of studies in support, like so that these studies would support Herbalife products. And um, any science that's like paid for by an independent company is, it's never going to be legitimate science. But I guess this is down to the point where he has like had uh, like images, like microscopic images and stuff photoshopped. So uh, it seems like he it kind of sucks now. And um, I'm kind of on the fence about writing back because my ego would love to say that I had a Nobel Prize winning scientist on the show. Uh, it makes me sound big time, which I'm not, but I would love to be. And um, but if they're a, if they're a shady huckster, then what am I doing giving them a platform? And I'm not scientifically literate enough to call him out on his shit. So it would just be me asking him questions to kind of have a laugh about an old man talking about breathing and boners. Um, but yeah, I don't know. And I fucking hate shit like Herbalife that preys upon people's naivety and their vulnerability. Um, you guys know that I'm a chronically ill person and the sort of snake oil in the chronically ill community is ridiculous. If you tweet anything about endometriosis, you will get like companies hitting you up in your DM about their oils or like, have you tried celery juice? Um, which, uh, spoiler alert, none of those work for a condition which, uh, it appears that you're born with, um, and then it is awakened uh, as you grow and mature. These cells that are somewhat like stem cells uh, morph into these endometriosis. Anyways, I digress. So I hate fucking snake oil. I hate it. I hate how it preys upon people. I hate how these companies are all multi-level marketing. I the fucking I listened to a podcast recently about the. Um, essential oils industry and how these people are like refusing to get cancer treatment because they so believe that essential oils are going to fix their cancer. Um, I hate it. So I don't know that I want to give a platform to someone who is messed up in all of that, even though it could make me sound big time by being like, oh, no big deal. I interviewed a Nobel prize winning scientist. Um, so that's, that's all the housekeeping for now. Um, I, uh, I have my surgery coming up, which I'm going to talk about in an episode of Decency with DeLorean. Those release early on our Patreon, which is $1 a month. And then like two weeks later, they drop on the Decency with DeLorean feed. So, um, that's where I'm going to talk about the surgery stuff and, uh, this whole journey and whatever. So, um, I don't really know how that's going to affect the production schedule, like if 
uh, all this time off of work, I'll be able to record more pods or if I'll be incapacitated in a way that I'm recording less pods. There's a lot of unknowns coming up in the future, uh, but obviously I'm going to keep recording as much as I can because you know me, even if I'm sick and laying on the floor talking into a microphone, I'm going to record. Um, it's what I was born to do. Uh, so anyways, we're going to get into this new Paris Hilton documentary, which I, um, before I quit going on social media, I saw a lot of people posting about and going, oh my gosh, I never knew. I really relate to her now. And it seemed like this was going to be a groundbreaking documentary. Overall, it is not. And it's made by her people. So obviously it's made to not say anything negative about her. And much of it, I would say the first hour is showing what her life is like, which is pretty interesting um, because she runs 19 companies and these are like not licensing deals where she licenses her image to products, but like she actually owns the company. So uh, has a say on the operations of them. Um, she seems to be a very astute businesswoman. She also is the uh, world's uh, number one female DJ, and it seems very important to her to make sure that people know that she actually DJs. She's not a fake DJ. Um, so it kind of goes through that. It shows that she, on average, uh, is on her phone 16 hours a day, which is in sane. Um, she also is, hasn't taken a day off in like 10 years, uh, because she is, has a goal of earning a billion dollars. She said her former goal was to make a hundred million dollars. And she said, when I make a hundred million, I'll be happy. And then she got to that point and realized she wasn't happy and, uh, now made the goal a billion. Uh, she's a very, very driven person, which I don't think people realize because when you see someone who is um, social media famous and it's a lot of selfies, it's a lot of outfit changes, et cetera, et cetera, you assume what an easy gig they're making money for nothing. Um, as someone who runs social media for several podcasts and I do it in a very lazy way, I do not do it in a successful way, I can say that being successful on social media takes a lot of work to constantly be curating content and interacting with people and going places specifically to photograph yourself there or putting outfits together. Like it is actually a job. It seems like a bullshit job to a lot of people, but it is actual work. It does take work for the people who are quote unquote social media celebrities, the YouTubers who are making and editing videos. It is a weird new line of work, but like it is work. And we can tell that by the fact that Paris Hilton is on her phone 16 hours a day. Um, so the documentary kind of goes back and forth. They interview her mom, Kathy Hilton. They interview her sister, Nikki, who makes it very clear that she does not usually do interviews like this because as we know, Nikki Hilton, she, she married a Rothschild and she has two, chi two children with him. And she is more or less totally receded from the public spotlight like she'll go to like a vanity fair party or something but she's not a public person anymore uh which i think is part of the job title when you become a rothschild and uh what is also clear is that nikki hilton still has anorexia because i would say almost 10 years ago before she had kids before she was married she took a break from the spotlight to get treatment for her anorexia and because um, it was the height of the Rachel Zoe as a fashion designer, like or as a fashion stylist person. And Rachel Zoe, for those who don't know, was a celebrity stylist whose clients included the Hilton sisters, Nicole Richie, Lindsay Lohan, um, all of kind of the Hollywood it girls, the girls who would be paparazzi at Kitson. And Rachel Zoe was known for giving her clients Adderall 
um, or hooking them up with a doctor who would give them an Adderall prescription so they could maintain those very, very skinny bodies. Because as you might remember, Nicole Richie, when she first became famous on The Simple Life with Paris Hilton, Nicole Richie was quote unquote heavier. Um, and I don't want to say that she was fat or anything like that, but she had more weight on her than, uh, your typical Hollywood person or whatever. I bet if I pulled up a picture right now, I would say, oh my God, she was skinny. But at the time everyone was like, she's Paris Hilton's like chubby friend. And then all of a sudden Nicole Richie got insanely thin, insanely thin, like the type of thin where you see the ribs where there should be breast tissue in the front. You're just seeing ribs. And that was during the time that Nicole Richie was under the stylistic whatevers of Rachel Zoe and everyone was doing Adderall back then. Um, so Nikki Hilton is in the documentary. Um, they, I'm trying to think of who else they interview, but they interview a lot of people to give a full scope of Paris's life. And we see a lot of home videos because apparently uh, Paris Hilton was the firstborn child to her parents and the, they just videotaped her all the time and her nickname was Star because she was so beautiful. Like she was so captivatingly beautiful. And um, despite that and despite always filming her and naming her Star, Kathy Hilton, her mother, who had been a child star herself, was determined to have that not be the life for her children. And what she wanted was more of an upper crust bourgeois lifestyle for them, you know, for them to go on and marry Rothschilds. So she had them in etiquette classes and all that stuff because she was trying to raise society ladies. Um, and what they keep alluding to throughout the film, um, some sort of trauma. And so like Paris will be on a business trip and she'll say like, I can't sleep. I don't sleep. You know, the night, these nightmares come back, you know, and they keep alluding. She'll be like, oh, this photo was from before I experienced any trauma. And it's an hour of this. And the whole, I think the whole reason I'm doing a podcast episode about this is to save you from having to watch the two hour documentary, which is interesting, but I don't know that it's worth two hours of your life. But if you're stuck in traffic, you can listen to me give you the highlights. So we have an hour of them alluding to some sort of trauma we experienced and also her discussing her issues with intimacy and men and how she. Uh, what we know as Paris Hilton is a character and how she feels stuck in this character um, because like it's not even her real voice that she uses and like the real Paris growing up was just super obsessed with animals which we still know to this day she's obsessed with her little doggies and she has one in this movie who's so stinking cute it's this little apple-headed chihuahua but you can tell he's so inbred like his legs are super bowed and he can barely walk. It's just, and it's sad. It's fucking sad. I hate what breeders do to these dogs. They're like, let's just breed them to make them smaller and smaller. And yeah, at that point, they'll be hobbled and can't walk, but they'll be real tiny. Um, so yeah, she was always obsessed with animals. She's kind of a stay at home, wear sweatpants, like low key type person. But along the way, she created this facade, this party girl with this different voice, the sort of, that's hot, the like whispery, higher pitched uh, voice. And she keeps, and you're thinking like, what is this? Because it seems like a cleverly crafted PR piece. Like you won't know the real Paris. Like you, this is all a facade. And you're just thinking like, is she trying to go through an image change? And this is a piece of marketing material to make us change like our opinion of her image. And so um, they finally talk, they first they talk about when the sex tape was released. And um, I'm thinking, oh, is this the trauma they're talking about? Which I'm not saying that having a sex tape released of you would not be traumatic. But I was like, is this what she's linking all this PTSD to? Is this the trauma? Uh, it's not, but I'll tell you about the sex tape. Because the sex tape was filmed in 2001 when she was 19 and she was dating Rick Solomon, who was 36 at the time. And that's a little yucky, don't you think? 19-year-old, 36-year-old. Sometimes things are different 
in Hollywood, like these kids grow up too fast. So I, but it just, it seems yucky to me. I don't like it. Um, and he was her first real boyfriend. That was her first real boyfriend, her first real love. I don't know that she lost her virginity to him. I think it probably was gone a long time before, but, uh, her first real boyfriend. And so they make this tape in 2001 and he releases it in 2004, just a couple weeks after the Simple Life premieres. So the Simple Life, her reality show with Nicole Richie premieres and uh, it's very successful. And Rick Solomon says to himself, I'm going to piggyback on this. So um, I'm going to release this sex tape that we made just for us. And it exploded. The video received uh, several AVN awards in 2005. It was best-selling title of the year, best renting title of the year. It was called One Night in Paris, by the way. They first leaked online and then it was released on DVD as One Night in Paris. Um, Okay, so best-selling title of the year, best renting title of the year, best overall marketing campaign for an individual product. Uh, The DVD was distributed by a Uh, a production company called Red Light District. And um, since the rights to the video have been purchased by Vivid Entertainment. So big names in this. Um, The official release of the video opened with a dedication that states, in memory of 9-11, we will never forget. I can't. I fucking can't. Because I don't know, because this was filmed in 2001? Is that why? I don't know. Um, An American singer-songwriter Pink parodied one of the scenes from the sex tape in her music video for her song Stupid Girls. So in essence, Pink is calling Paris a stupid girl. I do not like Pink. I don't, I don't know why she, I don't like her. And I, and now I especially don't like her because she's making fun of someone whose sex tape leaked as if Paris is the stupid girl when it's something that she did when she was 19. Um... Paris claims that basically her boyfriend pressured her into making it. She didn't want to do it. She didn't want to be on film, but she didn't want to upset her boyfriend. She also was intoxicated in it. And I have not seen the film since it was released in 2004. I was not going to rewatch it for this podcast. Um, So it has been 16 years since I saw it. But I do remember her saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And like... He's like making her go down on him on camera. And she's like, I like at a certain point she stops and is like, I don't want to do this. And I remember like at the time thinking like, God, she's a lazy lover. Like she's just such a spoiled, lazy person. She can't even do the job that is a blow job, which was very misogynistic of me. Uh, I was 19 at the time. So like, don't hate me. Um, I didn't know any better. I was 19. I had a lot of internalized misogyny, which I have since worked through. Um, But that is how everyone felt at the time. She was villainized. A lot of people thought she leaked it herself, which she didn't. Um, So yeah, she's pressured into making this videotape by her older boyfriend, which who hasn't been pressured into something sexually by a by a boyfriend, especially when you're a teenager and they're older. I've been there. Um, and you think like, well, I love him. We're in love. He wouldn't do anything to hurt me. Yada, yada, yada. There's a lot of trust that you put in someone. And so to have it betrayed at such a global scale must have been terrible. Uh, but Pink thought that this made Paris a stupid girl. Um, Hilton has said publicly that she never received a penny from the sex tape, while Solomon uh, reportedly made $10 million the first year. Um, Hilton sued Rick Solomon over the tape, and he sued her and her family for defamation because she said that she was intoxicated in the video and didn't want to make it. So she's like, I'm suing you for releasing this. And he's like, I'm suing you for ruining my good name by claiming that I forced you into these sex acts. Uh, Fuck you, Rick Solomon, who for some reason married and divorced Pamela Anderson twice. I don't know what went on there. Um, So they settled the suits and Hilton, Paris Hilton received $400,000, which she donated to a charity. Um, So I don't like that. And it does seem very violating. Uh, Who has not done something at 19 that was stupid? And then to have it all of a sudden like, 
ruin your life and your good name. Um, also at 19, Paris was a model and signed to Donald Trump's modeling agency, which is really yucky. I don't like the idea of any woman being around Donald Trump, let alone a teenager. Um, so I guess, okay, so we'll back it up because they, they talk about that. I think that's the trauma that they're talking about. It's not. We go back to when Paris is 15 years old and her family moves to New York City. And um, she's attending, you know, an up fancy rich kid school. Her parents are thinking we're going to make these society kids. But Paris does what a lot of young, I mean, children in New York do, which is fall into the nightlife scene. And um, this will sound insane to those of you who are not familiar with New York City. But in New York, um, especially 20 years ago or more, you could go to a club at 13, 14, if you looked cool, if you had the style, if you, you know, were a club kid or whatever, you didn't have to flash an idea to get into a nightclub. Um, it's kids grow up really fast in New York. I remember watching the movie Kids in a, a film class I took. And it was funny because the discussion afterwards was like, oh my God, I can't believe like these kids were living like that because they're doing drugs and they're fucking and they're like 14 years old. And um, like the, someone in my class was like, this is like exaggerated or whatever. And I'm like, I grew up in Mesa, Arizona and I knew people like that, let alone, you know, knowing people who grew up in New York and their narratives of what that life was like. So Paris is going to her fancy school during the day but she's going out to clubs at night and we saw some photographs and she did look super cool. She was like raver club kid, like no bouncer is going to kick her out of a club. And she was getting a little paparazzi. It was showing up in the New York post and her parents were hysterical. Like our kid is on the wrong path. And I think the pressure to be this Tony, you know, um, I don't know, sophisticated person and the fact that what she found the world that she loved was nightclubs. And like I get, I get her parents' fear, but I think a lot of times, and I'm saying this from personal experience, like parents can get hysterical over things that a child is doing when really it is just them working through discovery. My parents were so horrified when I started reading, I don't know, I, like I not even like controversial stuff. Like I was reading Burroughs and I owned Marilyn Manson's autobiography. Like it wasn't like, these are books. These are books. I liked to read books. And I wore black eyeliner and I had ripped jeans. Like I listened to punk rock and I was getting into learning about like anarcho politics. And my parents were hysterical that I was going down the wrong path instead of saying she is just discovering the world and deciding what is for and isn't for her. Obviously, you don't want your child like getting wasted. You're worried they're going to get hurt or sexually assaulted. Like there is a legitimate fear to be like, oh my God, my kid, my child, my 15 year old is going to nightclubs. Like we can't have that. I understand. Hindsight is 2020, but obviously, like, Paris is still, she's a 39-year-old woman. She loves electric music carnivals. She's, like, a DJ. That is kind of her scene. So this was her just finding her scene. And she said for the first time in her life, she felt like she belonged somewhere. Because when she was in these fancy rich kid schools, she always felt out of place because she wasn't she wasn't like a Rothschild or whatever. She wasn't that person that everyone was. And so she's going to nightclubs and she's getting dressed up and dancing and she feels like, okay, I'm finally home now, which is how a lot of my friends are. Um, I have a friend who I'm not super close to anymore, but like we were scenester party girls together, you know, five nights a week, we're getting dressed up, we're going out, we're dancing on tables, like we were scene kids. And that still is her life. She performs like a quote unquote drag. Um, 
because nightlife is her life. It's what she loves more than anything. She's world traveled. And when she travels, like she just wants to discover a city's nightlife. There are people like that. Uh, and in fact, this documentary, um, Paris Hilton reminded me a lot of uh, Kat Marnell, whose book, How to Murder Your Life, is super great. And Kat Marnell admits in her book that a lot of the things that she's complaining about are white girl problems. Like she's like, I get it. Like she wanted to be a magazine editor and she was working on like a zine and she'd been working on it for forever, like building this zine, writing the articles and her parents found it and there was stuff in there about birth control or whatever. And her parents destroyed this thing that she had spent a year of her life creating like cutting and pasting together her own magazine and that it was really traumatic for her which it's like hashtag white girl problems like I get it but a lot of times in these wealthy households these wealthy successful households what is missing is the element of love and intimacy and unconditional love which is really important to the development of a person I grew up in a house it's not like we were crazy rich my mom is an RN. My stepdad was a union steel worker. Um, but this was the 90s when that was a very dual income. That's the economy was different. Like we own we owned a fucking boat. You know what I mean? Like we we were okay. We lived on a lake. We owned a boat. Um and uh so like my I never I never went to bed hungry. I, I never worried about the lights getting shut off. But like what I didn't have was unconditional love. I did not have that in my household. Um, I had a lot of psychodrama, chaos, um, and uh, it's something that I deal with to this day. I have issues with emotional intimacy um, because like I literally did not know what it was like to be unconditionally loved by another human being till I was 27. Uh, and uh, that's weird, right? Okay, so enough about me. I think it's why I relate to these people like Kat Marnell and Paris Hilton. So Paris Hilton is going to nightclubs in New York and it's showing up in the tabloids and her parents cannot have this. This is not, they're supposed to be, you know, going to horse shows and drinking tea with their pinkies up um, and uh, then secretly flying to pedophile islands like normal rich people. Uh, so her parents panic and they they ground her, they lock her up, she keeps escaping. So eventually they have these people come and grab her in the middle of the night and take her to a reform school or what is called a residential therapeutic facility. Um, and she, I think she said she went to four or five of them over time, uh, but... Um, they, uh, she ultimately escapes all of them. Uh, and, uh, so it, it's, it's because they are, um, they are abusive and, uh, horrific place. And like what teenager isn't going to escape them? Um, so her parents just keep, you know, sending her to another one. And I don't trust these places at all because like anytime you get parents away from their children or you get children away from their parents, like it's, I just feel like it's really rife. It's really like a, an opportunity for sexual assault to take place. I, my parents tried to send me to these places. I thankfully was able to like get out of it somehow. And I'm very thankful because what they say in the brochure is like, send your kid here. We'll fix them. We have horses. Like when my parents found out I was bulimic, they like my mom came to get me from school and was like, we're going to this place. They have horses. Like it's for troubled teens. <laughs> They're going to fix your bulimia. They have horses. Don't you want to go? And I was like, no. And I refused to get in the car and it was a whole thing. Um, and they tried again with a couple other places. And thankfully they never sent anyone to grab me out of my bed in my sleep. So the last two places she went to was one place called Sidu, which is in like C-E-D-U, which is in California. And um, it was started by this cult called uh, – hold on. Stand by. Can I find what it was called? Um, maybe not. Synanon, I think, is what it's called. Um, 
So she went there, and it's notoriously bad. In fact, this um, guy, Adam Egget, who I don't know if he's a writer or a comedian. He, I think he's a comedian. He was there for three years as a child. Uh, he There's a clip of him on Joe Rogan talking about it. But he's working with one of the writers of Better Call Saul on a pilot about it. Uh, so hopefully that pilot gets picked up because the things he says about it is insane. And I'm not going to go too much into Sidhu or Synanon because I think I might do a future episode about it because who doesn't want to talk about a hippie hippie ideology that led into an abusive cult because it seems to always do. Um, So that was the second to last one she was sent to. The last one she was sent to was called Provo Canyon School in Utah. They called themselves Therapeutic Education. And this place sounds like a nightmare. Uh, They declined to comment publicly on Hilton's claim about mistreatment there, uh, noting that the facility changed ownership in the year 2000 after the after Paris Hilton had gone there. Uh, however, students have made similar claims since then. Um, so obviously it is still happening and it is still a bad place. So in this documentary, Paris Hilton talks about this place and how it was so traumatic and abusive and she was beaten and if you disobeyed, they would strip you down and throw you in a shower or if you refused to take your meds because they would force feed you meds that you didn't know what they were, they would strip you to your underwear and put you in a bare cell, like a a jail cell that just has a drain in the floor to shit and piss into and you'd be in there for like 24 hours. Um... And she reunites with some other survivors from this school and they talk about how it's affected their life and how they have PTSD from this place. And they start this campaign called hashtag break code silence. Um, And I researched this school after watching the documentary and it turns out it is so, it's bad in the documentary to the point where she does have post-traumatic stress from it because you weren't allowed to talk to your parents your mail was monitored and when she got out she never talked to her parents about what happened there but she had a lot of mistrust of them a lot of distance from her family and um okay we'll get into the after beforehand or or the after later so I want to get into what happens at the school so um So yeah, like if you refuse your meds, you're stripped down. And there have been several charges of sexual assault there. Um, Let's see. Uh, I have a quote. So I went on their Yelp. I went on the Yelp for Provo Canyon School and predating this documentary, there were people warning about this place. Uh, One of the quotes from Yelp uh, was, I arrived in October 2002 and stayed till around May 2004 against my will. Um... Oh, wait, no, this is from an article. Sorry, guys. Okay, it's this person named Lee Goldman. Um, Because, okay, she says she was sent there because she was having a rebellious behavior and her parents thought it would help. Um, Years have passed, but Goldman's memory of her time at Provo Canyon School remains. She goes on to say... When I got into the school, I was taken upstairs to a room with a bunch of staff, and I was told to take off all of my clothes. I faced a lot of abuse. I faced days where I would just sit in their observation rooms, which are unheated rooms with a drain in the middle of them. Uh, The most difficult memory for her was what she said was known as shower checks for girls who were told they didn't know how to clean themselves. She remembers having to shower while a staff member watched to make sure she washed herself to their satisfaction. And it seems like overall their showers were monitored by adults of either gender. Um, Not cool. Not cool. A lot of stripping these kids down naked. Um... Between 2011 and 2014, police responded to 56 calls for assault at Provo and 25 for sexual assault or sexual offenses. Officers were called 29 times to Provo Canyon School's boys campus to investigate sex crimes over a four-year period, a rate that's more than four times the average at a youth residential treatment facility in Utah, which we will get into why there are so many of these facilities in uh, Utah. Um, 
kids would be starved. They would sleep on a camping cot in the hallway with the lights on on quote unquote suicide watch. Even though they weren't suicidal, it was a punishment. So like say you, for instance, they had to sit at their desks with both their feet on the floor and their hands on the desktop. And if they would even reach up to scratch their nose, they would be in trouble. And then they could get put on quote unquote suicide watch, which means you get to sleep on a cot in the hallway with the lights on. Um, They also had to ask, they weren't allowed to go to the bathroom for an hour after they ate meals. And like, if you were like uh, one of those people who, when you eat, you have to shit immediately. And you're like, I got to go now. I'm going to go shit. Then after you came out of the bathroom, someone would be waiting there to beat the shit out of you. Um, Let's see. The units were staffed by locals who were no older than 25 at most, devout Mormons with little to no training or in social or behavioral science sciences, many of who were students at the local university, newly engaged and becoming young parents and constantly being replaced. So like you'd work there and then you get pregnant and you go home or something. I don't know. Um Someone says that they learned fairly quickly uh, that in order to fly under the radar, they would attend the LDS services that were offered um, because they were fed at the services. So these kids were super hungry. So they're like, okay, if I go to church, I get fed. And the staff would treat them favorably if they attended the church services. Um, Someone said that uh, in one of the Yelp reviews, I, like most, if not all of the residents, was placed on birth control despite being a 13-year-old virgin. And this has never sat right with me as an adult. Like, fuck, yeah, I agree. That doesn't seem right. Also, um, when you're dealing with children with behavioral problems, I get it. You don't want to get anyone to get pregnant under your watch because you could be sued. However, um, uh, you know, the hormones... The hormones of a teenage girl are wild. And then if you try to mess them with them even more with birth control, you're going to get even crazier behavior. It's uh, And also no one should be forced to take medicine against their will. Um, a lot of girls had their heads shaved. Uh, someone says, my head was shaved. I was kept in isolation, a little bare cement room, tied down and shot up against my will. Uh, and without the consent or knowledge of my parents, with Haldol on a near ba- daily basis for several weeks. And they would call Haldol booty juice. And basically, you would be like carried away by giant men and injected with booty juice and thrown into solitary if you did ba- anything wrong. Uh, I read one girl, they were told to line up in gym class, and she did a cartwheel on her way to getting in into the line, and she was deemed like disruptive and disobedient, and then you know carried away and shot up with Haldol for doing a cartwheel, uh, which like what? What the fuck? Um, also apparently at one point, uh, this Provo Canyon school was a drug testing center. So these teens who are being drugged against their will, against their, like without the knowledge of their parents are having, are being experimented on. Is that not the most insane thing? I mean, this does sound, so initially when it was like, oh my God, Paris has this trauma that's going to affect and ruin the rest of her life. Um, I was like, what is this fluff piece going to be? And then as we, as she talked about the school, and then as I researched the school, I cannot even imagine because it sounds worse than being in prison. Um, the, the physical punishment, the drugging, the not being able to contact people on the outside is insane. Uh, and also apparently Utah has very few laws against child abuse, um, places like Provo Canyon are now owned by corporations such as Universal Health Services, which does own Provo Canyon School now. Um, and these uh, corporations have profited handsomely from the system, not only by getting parents to fork over more than $7,000 per month, but also collecting money from Medicaid so foster children and other unwanted kids can be dumped there. Um, for instance, 
Uh, Alaska spent more than $31 million in Medicaid funding over six years, sending 511 kids to reform schools in Utah, according to a recent investigation by the Salt Lake City Tribune. Uh, many of the uh, roughly 200 private residential schools for teens are found in Utah, Idaho, Montana, and Texas because of the relatively lax uh, state regulations experts said. Um, however, Utah is home to almost a hundred of those roughly 200 residential uh, youth treatment centers. Uh, in 2015 alone, Utah uh, had $328 million in revenue uh, and uh, from this industry, and it accounted for 6,400 jobs. So this is a big industry in Utah. Um, and critics say the industry has flourish, flourished there for other reasons. Um, the land is affordable, workers don't demand high wages, and the state regulators are stretched thin and reluctant to punish violations. Also, the reputation of Mormons as being clean cut and wholesome really helps. So people are like, oh, you are a rebellious bad kid. We're going to send you to Utah, the most wholesome state, to a treatment facility run by Mormons, and that's going to uh, straighten up your life. Which, spoiler alert, just because someone's a member of a religion does not mean that their behavior represents the belief of that religion. Not to mention that in the texts of many religions, there are very dubious things. So uh, I grew up in a uh, Mormon-run city, and it is fascinating how if you are Mormon or you convert to Mormon, the doors that will open for you because of that. It also was fascinating that these clean-cut good Mormon kids, I was this punk rock kid, I was the bad one, but like these kids were like doing acid and having anal sex because um, – what is it? It's I forget what there's a nickname for it, but it's, you know, the backdoor loophole or something. The poop hole loophole because uh, you save your pussy for marriage. The amount of children that I knew growing up in high school who had molestation going on in their families by other family members, like with like Mormon families. I knew so much molestation that was happening within those families. It was upsetting. It was very upsetting. So don't go around thinking that just because it's a Mormon city, people are behaving well, so she gets out and she doesn't want, like she, she doesn't, it's so traumatic. She doesn't talk to her parents about her experience there. Um, and she basically, and she got out when she turned 18, by the way, because they never, if your parents are willing to keep paying, they never say you're better and you can go like they, you are sick and any sort of rebellion you have against your mistreatment is an example of your your mental health issues, so you need to stay in or whatever. So she turns 18, so she's able to leave. And she becomes determined to put that so far behind her to not even, like, acknowledge that that experience happened to her. And she moves to L.A. and she starts dressing up and going to clubs. And basically, she says she created this persona of everything being perfect, like – everything's perfect. My life is great. I'm so rich and pretty and I have no cares. Like basically creating a facade of nonchalance, um, which is what a lot of us do to mask trauma. I'm very open about the fact that I don't think that it's unrelated to my, um, my history or my childhood that I have legally changed my name um, because I don't want to be that person who was victimized so badly. Like I have I, something I think, you know, if I analyze it, it's a breakaway from the abuse. And so it's like, oh, that other person was abused. That other person experienced that. I'm a whole new person. I've been reborn. And I dress a certain way and there's a facade and um, we – my music, I think, would be a great example of someone who has, like, experienced, like, sexual assault and because of my medical condition, like, sexual difficulties. And I make music that makes me sound like sex is very – like, I am very much in control of my sexuality and sex is no big deal. And it isn't 
Um, it's obviously a facade. It's not fully representative of who I am as a person. So I think it's setting up to create that divide. So now, now Paris has got me. She's got me hook, line, and sinker. I see you, girl. You were trying, you're just trying to reinvent yourself and present this image of someone who everything is no big deal. Chill. Perfect. You know, um, and also you create this facade so no one can see how hurt you are underneath. Because when you expose your hand, like no one no, want, no one wants to be known as a victim. And for me, it was one of the hardest things about coming forward and be, when I'm honest about the fact that I was raped, like it's, it is uncomfortable for the fact that I don't want to be seen as a victim. And so I think a lot of people don't realize that, that like it's scary to come forward about the tragedies that we've faced um, because you, you just don't want to be a victim. You don't want to be perceived as like weak or whatever. How could you let that happen? Or, or be treated like you're exaggerating what happened to you. Um, I know that I'm definitely going through that with like having a debilitating health condition and people think that uh, endometriosis is just bad periods. It's just bad periods. Um, and no, it's not. It's an entire body illness that makes you sick all month long. So, um, but yeah, so if, if you come forward and you say, oh, I have, I have endometriosis and then people minimize the effect that it has on your life. Like, oh, it's just bad periods or whatever. Or Sydney's being a brat or she's crazy. Why does she think she needs to go to Atlanta for treatment? And you're just like, man, I wish I had never come forward about that at all. I mean, I think a lot of times uh, I regret being honest with people. I've never regretted being honest with people on the podcast because they aren't talking back to me. Um, and so they can listen and they can think whatever they want to think. But I definitely, um, I would say like 98% of the time that I come forward and I'm honest with people in my real life about like my vulnerabilities, I regret it because I immediately panic and I think that will be used against me. And so the character of Sydney DeLorean in general like not on the podcast, but like in my music or like when I'm at work in general is someone who's like, chill, I'm Spicoli, I'm having fast times at Ridgemont High. Um, because I don't, I don't want, I just, I just, I, I worry about my vulnerabilities being exploited or people talking about me behind my back or dismissing, you know, it's just a whole thing. It's just a whole thing where I'm like, I wish people didn't know this about me. And like, like I currently wish that my coworkers didn't know about my health problems um, because it just, it, be, it becomes a thing. It becomes a thing. And um, so I get why Paris was like, I'm not even going to admit to being that troubled teen or having been abused. And honestly, she never says that she was sexually assaulted at this school, but like, I feel that there is a strong possibility that that happened. It felt to me like that also happened, but she's not ready to talk about it, which is totally, totally fine. But some of her behavior in later on in life is indicative of a person who experienced sexual assault, which is kind of a flagrance with their privates and their sexuality, um, which happens a lot to people who have been sexually assaulted, especially as children. Uh, they tend to act out sexually. Um, so I get it. I get it. And so she, basically like people who knew her before she went to this school were like, yeah, your voice was different. Like everything was different. And her classmates from this school said when they watched The Simple Life, they thought it was hilarious because like she was playing this dumb character. And at one point she's like, yeah, I've never used a mop. Like how does this work? And they're like, we had to scrub floors at that school. Like, I've seen Paris use a mop. But, like, she's it's not part of the character of Paris Hilton to be like, oh, yeah, I used to have to scrub floors at my reform school. She's just like, oh, I don't know how this works. Um, and also, apparently, they, this was really tooting her own horn. But in the documentary, someone from her school says to her – 
um, that they remember being surprised because she was so quiet. But then every time she would speak in class, she would be like super intelligent and be able to explain like complex economic ideologies or whatever. Um, it seemed like a little jerk off moment, but whatever. Um, if Ferris Hilton invited me to hang out in her home, I probably would jerk off her ego too. Let's be real. Um, so she talks about how this experience has affected her dating life. And she says at one point that she endured physical abuse in five different romantic relationships. And she doesn't name names, but she's dated a number of famous men, including Nick Carter, who also, to be fair, was the victim of extreme childhood abuse because apparently he was the member of the Backstreet Boys who was like given up as a sacrifice to Lou Pearlman, the big, fat, rapey record producer. Um, and apparently he has some serious PTSD from that. And so in that situation, neither Paris nor Nick have had modeling of what healthy love appears to be. Um, so I'm sure their relationship was a disaster. But she says she confused, like, it, because she was at the school during her formative years and, like, felt betrayed by her parents, like, it just confused her, like, what real love was and that maybe she can't see the warning signs until it escalates to a certain point because she's so used to abuse, which happens a lot. Is that people who have been abused? Look, I'm crying. I'm crying over vague strangers. People who have been abused go on to be in abusive relationships because that's what they know and they're comfortable with. Um, there's a scene where she's showing all of her laptops and she says when she enters a new relationship, she gets she has to get a whole new laptop because either like in her old relationships, the guys will like slam them and break them. And she shows one that's bent because she's someone who has become really driven towards financial success. And she says that it became part of her goal after leaving that school because she basically wanted to be so rich that no one could ever hurt her ever again, that she would be protected, which is fair because that actually talk about someone who is, has an astute understanding of economics. That is how you obtain the most freedom is to obtain the most money. So she's on her phone all the time. She's on her computer all the time. She is always working on building her brand and her empire. And that past relationships have resented her for that. I also can relate to that. <laughs> they have resented her for like, when they're on the couch watching a movie, she also has her laptop out, which fucking I see you, girl. I'm also that person. Um, so uh, so she says that, like, men will, like, throw and slam and break her laptop. Um, there were paparazzi photos in the mid-2000s of her covered in bruises from whoever her boyfriend was at the time. Like, she has legitimately been in some serious physical uh, physically abusive relationships. Um, in the documentary, she is setting up like all these ring cameras in her house and they ask her why. And she's like, well, I'm dating this new guy and he's going to be at my house while I'm not here. And I just have a lot of trust issues and I want to make sure everything is okay. Um, and, uh, it? So that's not normal by the way watching people. If you don't trust someone to be in your house, they shouldn't be in your house. Don't let someone in your house. Like if you think you need to have video cameras on, just don't let them in your house. I also don't think you should be in a relationship with someone that you don't have, that you have that little trust in. But I know that people with PTSD and past trauma have different trust issues than, than I have. Um, because I'm just not that way. Like if I don't fucking, tr listen, I had a coworker who was like, really trying to come by my house, like be like, oh, I'll bring you marijuana. I'll drop it off. And like some things was like, I just don't fucking want you to know where my house is. And so I did not let them come to my house because I didn't want them to know where my house was. So, so that's the type of person I am. And if you come into my house, it's because I fucking trust you. I know you're not going through my medicine cabinet, like whatever. Like I trust you. You're not in my life if unless I fucking, if I, unless I trust you, I'm not going to date someone unless I trust them because there's a lot of trust required to be in a relationship. Um, 
So anyway, she's setting up the ring cameras because she's dating this new guy. And then um, at one point she's playing this giant electronic music festival in Germany and she looks great. She's wearing this like iridescent geodesic dress. It's like tiles and um, and she got this clear like iridescent backpack. She looks great. And apparently it's a big deal music festival and um, her boyfriend is there, but he's seemingly drunk and he's giving her shit because she keeps paying attention to other people. And she's like, I had nine interviews to do. This is like the biggest event of my DJ career. This is a huge deal. I had to do press. And he's like, but you don't pay attention to me. You just leave me. You do that. She's like, that's my job. And then he's like, trying to carry her laptop and he drops it and he's just being a real shit. He's being a real shit. And um, he's trying to fight with her right before she goes on stage to the biggest DJ event in her life. And to which I turned to Zach who watched this with me and I said, that's what men will do. That's what men will do. You'll have the biggest thing in your life and that will make them feel insecure. So they will ruin it for you. 100%. When I did my record release art installation, my ex-boyfriend emailed me like three days before to tell me that he um, he tested positive for gonorrhea or something and blamed me for giving it to him. And like, meanwhile, I'm thinking like, I got tested before, during, and after our relationship because I am that much of a paranoid person having unprotected sex is like kind of a big deal for me. So I'm like, well, I got tested before, during, and after our relationship and I was clean. And now this motherfucker sends me an email saying that I gave him gonorrhea. So now I'm like installing the lights for this awesome installation. And I have to go spend my last $20 because I was a poor college student at the time. My last $20, which means I didn't eat for three days. I stopped by one of my jobs. I got some bread. Um, so so I have to st go to County Health and I have to tell them like my ex-partner said I got tested or he tested positive for gonorrhea. So now I have to get tested. And they're like, well, if you were in contact with someone who had it, um, we just treat you for it right away. So I had to swallow like four antibiotics and they had to give me a shot of antibiotics in my ass and um, send off the urine samples. And they were like, yeah, we don't see him in our records, but it doesn't mean like maybe he went somewhere else. Um, but like literally that's where poor people go to get tested. So I get, I have to take all these antibiotics. I have to get a shot of antibiotics in my ass and I'm having a meltdown because I'm so worried that I have an STI. Like it's going to ruin my life. And I'm worried because now my ex-boyfriend has like infiltrated my brain as if he didn't ruin enough years of my life um, by being an abusive fuck. And like somewhere in the back of my mind, I was thinking that he was doing this to fuck with me because he kn he knows, he knew how paranoid I was about STAs. So long story short, I ended up getting a yeast infection from taking that massive dose of antibiotics. And I got like the day after my art show, I got an email saying my test came back negative. I didn't have an STI. I never had an STI, but I did have a yeast infection. So yeah, the biggest night of my life, what was like the most important thing to me was ruined by some guy who like he knew, like he knew the time frame when this was happening and he had to fucking, like the best week of my life I spent setting up that show and I'm in between it crying in the bathroom and then also having my vagina on fucking fire. Uh, anyways, men, I can have very fragile, listen, maybe women too, but I deal with men. They have very fragile egos. And um, if you do anything to threaten that ego, they will lash out. And so, yeah, this guy is trying to ruin Paris's big debut by literally fighting with her before she goes on stage. And she's like yelling at her people, like, get him out of here, cut his wristbands off. I want him out of here. I want him out of the festival. Like, and she's just like begging him. Like first she's like, babe, stop, 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 stop. And he keeps going. And so she's like, cut off his wristbands, get him out of here. And she goes out and she DJs and, um, she broke up with him. She just told him she wasn't ready for anything. Um, but, uh, 
And she talks about how, like, you know, she visits her sisters with her sister and her sister's kids. And she's like, I love this. Like, I feel like maybe I'll miss my opportunity to have this. But and Nikki's like, it's not for everyone. Like, it's a lot of sacrifice. And, you know, like your work schedule now traveling 251 days a year wouldn't allow for this. Um, And Paris is like, yeah. And sometimes I feel like I'm never going to be in a real relationship because I am so messed up from this experience but she in the opening of the documentary she when they're teasing the trauma she's saying and then I realized the only way to get over it is to go public (laughs) and then we have an hour of teasing and then they finally tell us what happened so um you know, I do empathize with the girl. And also I think it's she's admirable in a lot of regards because she is so hardworking and driven, which happens to a lot of people who experience trauma because it's like you're – the whole reason I wanted to get a master's degree is to like prove to like everyone who was terrible to me in my childhood like I am somebody. Um, it's just like a really expensive fuck you that I can't afford to pay for. Um, so like I get that and I guess the documentary – achieved its goal of making me empathize with Paris Hilton, but also by exposing these um, schools, which seem to be a huge money-making thing and um, are horrible and horrific and abusive. And uh, everyone should look up uh, Adam Eget, E-G-E-T, on Joe Rogan uh, talking about it because it is insane. Um, So I hope you guys have a happy hump day. And, um, you know, watch the documentary or don't. Who cares? <laughs>